We live in a world of dynamic cyber threats, but one thing is clear, human behavior is the most vulnerable target for attacks. Welcome to Behave by CyberSafe, the foremost cybersecurity podcast focused on human cyber risk. Organizational awareness is no longer enough, so how will your team stay protected? Be sure to subscribe to Behave on your preferred listening app for cutting edge insights into our evolving industry and stay ahead of the shift to security behaviors and human risk quantification. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Behave podcast. My name is Ben Donaldson and I'll be your host for today. Yes, for those of you wondering, I am the guy at CyberSafe that is always talking about pizza. I'm incredibly fortunate today to be joined by Leanne Potter. Leanne's the head of security operations at ASDA and runs a consultancy called the AnthroSecurus, combining anthropology and security. Leanne sits on the board of community-led initiatives such as Innovate Her and Women in Leeds Digital and is also the winner of a number of awards named Computing Rising Star Security Specialist of the Year 2021 and Security Leader of the Year. I saw Leanne uh, speak at the NIST conference earlier this year and she was fantastic. Her thoughts on the topic of anthropologist in cybersecurity were one of the main drivers to her joining us on the podcast. Leanne, thank you so much for giving up your time to join us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. I've been uh, following the work you've been doing for quite some time now. And a uh, special plug out to your behavioral science database. Um, I use that all the time. Yeah, SebDB. It gets a lot of attention now. It's actually uh, super. It's really good. No, it's a, it's a great resource. And the fact that it's free just, uh, again, shows kind of our mission to really push security as, as far as we possibly can and, and kind of that human aspect. I hope I didn't steal your thunder uh, with that intro. I have a question though. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> I do get asked that quite a lot, actually. I get a lot of sleep. I'm, I have a very strong work-life balance kind of mentality, which people don't actually expect me to say, uh, considering all the stuff I do sort of outside of work. But um, I've just gone away on holiday, for example. I totally switched off. I didn't think about work once. And it was only just until I got back that I did. So um, I do sleep, but I just really have so much enthusiasm for this industry. As soon as I, and we might go on to this, as soon as I sort of retrained into a career in tech, I just fell head over heels in love with everything there was to do about tech. And to me, it doesn't feel like work. I just enjoy doing what I do. No, and that's super important, the kind of work-life balance. Life balance. Uh, we're seeing it, it becoming more popular now as people realise that it is totally okay. Out of interest, where did you go on? Where were you away? I went to Vietnam for a few weeks. It was fantastic. Oh, beautiful place, beautiful people, beautiful food. Um, I am gagging to go back. Can't wait. Love it. Love the, um, the, the mention of food there. It kind of, it's, it's a good one because it leads me into my icebreaker question. Now, I asked this to Maddie on a previous episode and she threw me off with a bizarre answer as many of the listeners will, will now have heard. But in true true fashion, to start us off, you're ordering a pizza. You can choose only four toppings, excluding obviously cheese and tomato base. What are you having? I'm going to go classic. And the reason why is because as a kid, I was an extremely fussy eater. So um, my parents used to order pizza and I used to pick up all the toppings. But as I got older, I have really come to appreciate the simplicity and the beauty of pepperoni and green peppers. And it has to be green peppers, no other colour just slightly chopped. Um, I just think it's just so perfect. And it has to be kind of a dutty takeaway greasy pizza with that kind of little film of oil on top. So if oil is, a, is another kind of ingredients there, that lovely little bit of takeaway oil. But around Christmas time, I do have a tradition. And that tradition is, is to order the largest size pizza I can find, which is a plain cheese pizza, and watch Home Alone and watch it as he eats it. So. 
I love that. I actually love that. Like Kevin, Kevin sat at home with his massive Yeah, exactly pizza. like That's Kevin. brilliant. <laughs> I might have to steal that tradition, although my girlfriend might hate me because we already eat too much pizza as it is. But I love the thought that went into that. Okay, green peppers specifically and pepperoni. Maybe I'll have to try that. I'll have to try it. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, feed, I'll feed back. Anyway, I kind of, just to dive straight into things, um, to give our listeners a bit of context, really wanted to understand a bit more about your path into cybersecurity and perhaps then exactly why you decided to dive into the kind of the human aspect, the people route. I'm a career retrainer. I wasn't always uh, in cybersecurity or tech. I started, I've actually, I was a wedding photographer for 10 years and I've done various other jobs working sort of like running offices and things like that. So just utterly untechnical things. And then I became a project manager for a charity and we were given £5 million budget from the big lottery fund and we were told solve destitution. That was the brief. So big old brief. We could do it however we wanted. So we opened our doors and we kind of let it know that we had this pot of money to help people. And what we were seeing time and time again was that people were coming into our service and one of the barriers to getting them out of destitution was their inability to access online services. So I became really fascinated by what's known as the digital divide. And we saw quite a lot of that during COVID where, you know, the theory is, is if you are digitally excluded, you're excluded from actually society and what is the impact of that. So I started studying that at a master's level while I was doing this job. I saw that digital and technology was moving a lot faster than the people it was supposed to be helping. And I thought, you know, there was a big concern around that. So how do I inform my findings of this big digital project I was doing to help people out of destitution and sort of feed that back with some sort of hard data and, you know, a bit more academic rigour to be able to sort of say to the government, hey, you know, this uh, benefit system you've just put all online and um, prevented people from being able to sign into the job centre like you traditionally used to be able to. It's really stopping people from eating, stopping people from paying their rent. It's just literally putting people in absolute dire straits. I absolutely loved working on that from a sort of anthropological perspective. So it, it became a sort of digital anthropology that I started doing. And after a while, I kind of started thinking, well, how do I actually get really hands-on and involved with this? And how do I actually influence technological decisions? So at the time, and this was about age 30, I thought, well, I'm just going to teach myself how to code. So that's what I did. Uh, so during my sort of evenings and weekends while I was working, I would sit down at the computer or any kind of spare time I had and I uh, used all the online free resources. I didn't pay for a penny for it. Teach myself how to code, which, you know, considering my an original degree was in English literature and my next one was in anthropology, um, it's kind of an unusual way to sort of approach it. But at the time it made sense. Now, I did want to get into cyber and I fully admit when I looked at how to get into cyber, at the time, and it's, it's got a little bit better, but not very much so, and we'll maybe come on to that later, but I'm trying to work on that. It was very, very restrictive for people in my background to be able to come and, come and work in cyber. So being a developer was an easier route in. So I got my first development job uh, within sort of six months of me kind of learning how to code and uh, started off as a graduate trainee, like the oldest graduate trainee there with a mortgage and everything like that. I started working at the NHS and I absolutely loved it. And I was able to really sort of input my anthropological understanding of how the services we were creating for the NHS um, impact people from a cultural perspective. And it was from there, you know, as I say, it was, that was my sort of secret way in. I managed to, I think the technical term would be bug, the security operations centre every single day from day one since I started saying, please, can I come in and work in cybersecurity? Please, 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 please. 
a year in, they let me in <laughs> and I became a SOC analyst. So I was really pleased. So during that period between being a dev and to being a SOC analyst, I, I'd spent literally every waking moment learning everything I could about cybersecurity. I was lucky to get hold of um, an Immersive Labs account and do all my learning on there, which was vitally important. I don't think I'd be here today without Immersive Labs. I was just so pleased to finally get the opportunity because they'd never really let a grad in there before. And I remember the first few weeks thinking, actually, this is really, really dull work. And the reason why it was dull work is obviously um, being a junior member of the team, I was given the task that nobody wanted. And uh, I, I remember using my development skills thinking, actually, why is this all automated? And then I started uh, writing scripts and I turned um, something that took me an entire day to do. I scripted it to a one click button and then I just turned around and says, what else have you got for me to do today? And then that's when I helped set up the Seam solution across the NHS. So uh, that was 1.5 million endpoints. Okay, that's big. And just to go back a little bit, you said you had a, a rather um, unorthodox way into, into cyber. I'm actually seeing it way more now in that people who are in these roles that we are talking to aren't coming from vastly technical backgrounds or kind of anything really to do with cybersecurity. I did a marketing degree at university, but managed to trip and fall into cyber and now absolutely love it. Admittedly, the human side, the more technical sides, I like to dabble in in free time and, and understand a bit more about. But no, I think we need that diversity as well. In if, if we were constantly looking for the technical people to do every kind of breadth of role there was in cybersecurity, I don't think we'd be where we are now. So it is super important. I definitely think that's massively the case, um, particularly for what you know what you would call security awareness and culture, because at the end of the day, I don't really want an out and out techie teaching people about how to protect themselves online. I want the average kind of Joe Josephine person coming along and saying, "Okay, let me let so me as a security person, sort of a technical security person, saying, okay, so this is the issue we're facing. Can you translate this into something that?" you would understand, be digestible, and then communicate that message out to a wider audience. I don't want people who are out and out technical. I want people who have lived in experiences. And I think that really actually makes a cybersecurity awareness program so much better, so much more effective. Yeah, it's, it's ultimately ends up being relatable and people can kind of see on a level with, with the different examples that people are giving, for sure. It's, it's interesting because um, the NCSE released their 2022 annual report um, and they said we've been part of a huge effort to ensure UK organisations, critical national infrastructure and the whole of society are as resilient as they can be. Where are we as a society, do you feel, when it comes to cyber resilience and in the people perspective? There's a couple of things at play. So I think we as um, cybersecurity professionals need to give people, the people we work with, the general public, a break, really. There is so much inertia and it's in part of our own making. And I think, you know, it's a couple of reasons. One of them is sometimes our own hubris um, as a sort of security capability. Um, we do sometimes kind of dictate upon high and, um, you know, we use things like, you know, call people, you know, stupid for clicking on things and things like that, expecting everyone to live and breathe cyber when they don't. And that expectation actually causes not only us to be disappointed, but it, it means that we don't serve the people we're supposed to be serving, which is what our whole function is about. It's, it's about serving others. It's not, unless you work in an out-of-house security company, you know, it is about, you know, meeting the needs of the business, meeting the needs of the, your customers and things like that. 
So there's that kind of hubris side of it. But then when we do sort of communicate messages, we use, you know, thud, fear, uncertainty and doubt. Now that's like, okay, to an extent. And it does, you know, I've put my sort of behavioral science hat on. It, it does influence change to a point. But if that's the only message that you have, it really ceases to become impactful. Because people bury their hands in the sand. If you get told, think, think about the news. You know, you get told bad news every single day when you watch news stories. How many times are you actually affected by that now? You, you're not. You become numb. You, your skin hardens to it. It's the same with security messages. So it doesn't help, really. But in terms of, you know, where we are as sort of a, sort of a society and things like that, again, cutting us some slack, you've got to think... And um, I'm using sort of some of the sort of work my um, good friend Wendy Gosher has been doing. Um, she writes cybersecurity books for children, um, cybersecurity protection books, uh, Netting Cyberland, a little plug for her there. Um, fantastic work. She wrote a really interesting article about storytelling and how you sort of use storytelling to get good habits for children. And then it made me sort of think um, one of the sort of analogies she used is, you know, we need to treat cybersecurity as as if we were talking about sex education, you know, it needs to happen. It might make you feel uncomfortable to talk about it, but, you know, we need to talk about the dangers of online presence. And it was from her article that I started thinking, actually, well, for a long time, you know, you get asked to create a password. And that those early days of creating a password, you know, from like, let's think a bit nowadays, you know, kids with iPads and things like that, getting told to create a password at age like four or five, how complex is that password going to be? It's not going to be very complex. And that kind of habit-forming situation builds and builds and builds. And if you've only ever used sort of simple passwords from a young age, it's going to be really hard to break out of that habit. It's a bit like, you know, starting smoking from a young age. You know, it's going to be really, really... The older you get, the harder it's going to break out those habits. And we're facing, you know, obviously a workforce, for example, you know, with sort of all different ages across range who've had different experiences, you know, they've not needed to have strong passwords in the past because the things that they were protecting at weren't very, you know, necessary to protect. You didn't need that kind of extra oversight. And so those bad habits or, you know, those weak passwords have kind of sort of transitioned into the modern uh, environment, you know, either work or personal life. And it can be really hard to actually break out of that mentality. And we need to be more sort of aware and cognizant of that. No, no, that's that's so true. And what a brilliant initiative to 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 be running the the whole schools thing is um is really picking up speed now. I do a lot of work with um with Sinem and Cheltenham and in my local area around schools, and there isn't there is an appetite for it now because they they know that they they are using tech all the time. They do understand the dangers, and they they're coming to understand it. There was a, I don't know, there was a study done recently um, and the behavioural science team at CyberSafe are probably going to shoot me for this, but we think that the older generation are the ones who are more complacent when it comes to cybersecurity. But actually, the risk lies in the younger generation because they think they know it all. And uh, I say the younger generation, I look about 12 years old when I don't have a beard, if you can even call this a beard, but it's something we will need to address. There's obviously, there's a lot of talk in the industry at the moment, uh, there's a lot of noise about intelligent nudging, alerts, interventions to influence behaviour. What's your understanding of it? Do you see it? Does it have legs? Is it something that's going to be really useful? Are we going to see more of it? I think it's going to becoming, become more prominent. And I think it needs to. To your point, it was exactly the same when I was... Um, you know, project manager for this charity, the assumption was it was actually people who were most digitally excluded with the older people. Actually, it was quite a lot of the younger people as well. So our way where we sort of turn around to people and think, oh, okay, uh, younger people, they're all sorted. We need to focus on, on, on older people. That is totally flawed thinking. So no, I totally agree with that. 
But in terms of um, sort of the way we use behavioural science, for example, I think it, it needs to come into play because behavioural science has come into play throughout everything we're doing at the moment. And the way I um, try and sell it to uh, organisations when I speak to speak to them about it, but like, how do you actually make a start on this? It's like, I think a really good start is if you have a user research programme or user experience programme, get in touch with them because they're really good at asking questions about interventions and understanding actually the nuances of what's said and what's not said. And I think that's what's going to be really important because too often when we as security people put in a type of control in place, one, we don't inquire about, you know, what the impact's going to be. So we just usually put it in. And then after that, once those controls are in place, do we ever go back to the people that it's affecting and see how, how people are getting on? Very rarely. Not to my knowledge. I've worked in lots of organisations and that almost never happens. And so the consequence of that is, is that people start doing workarounds, which are often more dangerous than the controls you've put in, you know, than the controls you put in place that you try to prevent people from doing. And so I think any kind of intervention where we can make it almost seamless, I think if we can aim as a industry to make security almost unseen, I think we'll be doing our jobs a lot better. And I like to talk about usability, functionality and security triangle. If you aware of that? For your audiences who haven't. Um, so if you think of a triangle, then at one point you've got usability and then what, the other point you've got functionality and security. The theory is, is um, as you move away from closer to usability, sorry, closer to security, you have you move away further from usability and functionality. That has been the thinking for quite some time, which is obviously bad because, you know, we are all very much technology critics if you are using a an app and you're having a bad experience you'll just stop using that app regardless if you need to actually use that app for something it's the same with security if you're going to if you have to use something and it impacts the way you're able to complete a task for example you're going to find a way to circumvent that so that's where i think sort of nudges and um, using behavioral science in a way to understand what is people's journey and again, maybe this is from my sort of developer days. He's thinking, what is the happy path of security? And what is the, you know, anti-path of security? And, and trying to work out the journey that way in a human-centric approach. Because I was listening to a uh, fellow uh, cybersecurity awareness guru, I would call him, called uh, Ian Murphy. And he was, um, he did a podcast recently and um, he joked, you know, the, the stats are... Um, Cybersecurity falls down because the human element, uh, you know, 94% of the time is like, well, I should beep in hope so that it's 94% of the time because who else would be doing this? And he's right. It's we, we talk about humans being, you know, the downfall of security interventions or letting things in, you know, like ransomware and things like that. And yeah, it is humans. It's not going to be the technology that lets us down. It's going to be the humans. But for whatever reason in our industry, we still focus on the tech rather than the people. And I think that we don't change that soon. And there is there is a lot more changes with your organisation, for example, really pushing that. I think if we don't change it soon, it's going to really come by and bite us. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there's a lot of work and I'm seeing a lot of work happening around that. And it's interesting, there's so many points you mentioned that I want to dive into. One of the big ones is, yes, making security that works for people, finding what that happy path is. And I think it's security that works in the background for you. You know, it's there. It's not a, a backstop and it's not a safety net, but it, it sort of is because 
we're seeing this, this requirement for almost like a hyper-personalized approach for support. So just in time or just uh, or point of risk interventions. Um, someone sharing a password, for example, over Slack, you get a message. It might have just completely slipped your memory. You get a notification saying, you sure you want to do that? Because it's A, you're probably going against the acceptable use policy, but B, it's just that quick reminder that actually you find useful. I had a, a, an email, it was a classic case the other day, I, People do all the time. I meant to CC somebody, had two people in my contacts with the same name. Google obviously knew that I usually don't send an email to that person and the other one, that combination together. And it said, are you really sure you want to do this? That is where we need to go with, with any kind of control. It's not going to be all of them because there are things that we can't stop, but that's what we need to encapsulate and try and, and kind of be there in the background, giving them the support when they need it. This whole do an hour of training every year, and that's going to stop breaches and stop all of these issues. Well, if that was the case, we would have kind of we wouldn't be where we are now, and we wouldn't be seeing these things in the news every week. So, yeah, do you think point of risk interventions are going to really kind of take off? I, I really do. I think it's necessary as well because you know we're all le- leading busy lives, even when we're sort of focused on a task and things like that. You know, if you're working from home, for example, and you can hear the washing machine in the background, or kids running in the background, dog running in the background, something like that. There's so much competing with your attention and humans are really bad at focusing, to be honest. We, you know, even when we like to think we are, we actually are really bad at details because our evolutionary stance hasn't needed us to be. We've needed to be very reactive um, to be able to, you know, back back in the day, any upcoming threats, you know, to fight off flight mentality. So we've needed to just make quick, quick snap decisions. And quite a lot of technology decisions aren't like that. Like you say, it's, and I think that's when these sort of nudges come into place because we don't have the capability to keep all that information in our head in terms of your example, you know, I'm just adding these people in, you know, I want to get a task completed. And that's your evolution talking. That's, that's, you know, that's, I needed to get a task completed that, and then that's when the sort of technology kind of nudges come in place, backed up by behavioural science saying, are you sure about this? And it gives you that pause for thought. So I think, yes, it was going to be really necessary. And, and being able to then measure from that. So how many times do I accidentally add the wrong people into email addresses? How do I then kind of do micro learnings, coaching to say, actually, and, and how is that? kind of then influencing my behavior. If I used to do it quite a lot, I now do it once every kind of six months. You're seeing the behavior change over time there uh, through those interventions. I want to quickly just revert back to something you were talking about and having a people-centric security culture. It was part of your talk at Nest, which was brilliant. I would just say you kind of, you obviously you spoke about it and, and highlighted it, its, its importance. What are the, some of the things that you've seen or you've done that have stood out and have really had an impact for, for people listening who are like, yeah, I really want to embed security into kind of and, and people-centric security culture into our entire organizational culture? Um, just a, any, any kind of bits of wisdom. So when I get brought into an organization, um, I, I get told, you know, we want it to be widespread. I say, that's great. It's a really great goal to achieve. And I say, okay, but it starts with you. It starts with the security team. So one of the sort of takeaways I got when I joined my very first security team was like, whoa, okay. I'd heard tech was a kind of a tough industry. The security industry was a different ball game, and I could 
instantly understand. Bear in mind, as I say, I had to really bug them for a year to get in and I showed lots of enthusiasm. I had the technical chops to back it up and they still said no. It was only kind of by a fluke I had an advocate that said sort of like, you know, give her a chance. We're still like that in quite a lot of organisations, that kind of ivory tower mentality. And so when I, when I'm asked, you know, how do we improve security culture? And I was like, it has to start with the security team. I do not, when I, when I sort of help people with interventions and things like that, I say, you can't go out there and start talking about security until you get your house in order, because that message is going to fall so flat. If you're still describing people as the weakest link, if you're still talking about zero trust as if it's their fault, for example, just all these sort of phrases that we use in our technical jargon that really put people off. And it doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve them. And so I, I would sort of suggest that when it comes to, you know, regardless of how you know enthusiastic you are about wanting to change security culture in your organisation, you've got to remember, actually, the book stopped of you. And if there's a reason why security culture isn't working, it's 100% likely it's because of your team. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And sometimes that is due to the fact that quite a lot of security teams kind of all look the same you know the hiring pool is the same um so going back to your earlier point about like you know, why different people in the industry is really important is it's more important now than ever because if you keep hiring the same sort of people to deliver your security capabilities from what i've seen it's not very inclusive and when things are inclusive you're not going to bring everyone on board for that yeah, it's such an important point you make. There's that classic, I think it's a meme that somebody made of, of the typical person that works in a SOC. It comes up on, on LinkedIn every now and then, but we, we do need it. And we're starting to see it. And it's just making it accessible to everyone and, and understanding that there are so many jobs in cybersecurity that actually you can have any kind of background to, to go and do. I really wanted to just kind of finish off on two last points. I'd love to know a bit more about your involvement with um, Innovate Her. And, and kind of how long you've been involved with it uh, and so on. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm on the advisory board, something I sort of really believed in. So the work they do is it's about getting young girls into tech because there's a huge drop off of girls learning te technical subjects, STEM subjects, particularly um, computer science. They're very enthusiastic uh, when they start learning it and then something happens in high school and it drops off. And then obviously if I'm, I'm talking about diversity with, a, you know, uh, capital D, you know, that's not good for my hiring capabilities in the future if uh, my hiring pool gets smaller because less people are doing computer science. So their their intervention is, is to sort of catch them at that kind of nice, nice age, you know, with like six to 13 um, and, and teach them all about uh, sort of how to code initially, but also, you know, what careers there are out there. Similarly, I'm also on the board of directors with um, Wild, called Women Leads Digital, but we've actually broadened that out now um, to just be diversity in general. So we, we look at race, we look at class and education and background and things like that. And the idea behind that is to kind of stop a, a brain drain from the north down south to prove that there is uh, excellent sort of tech capabilities up north as well. Um, and I think that is really important because almost a bit like why you know, Channel 4 moved up north. It's really important to actually have tech delivered by lots of people from all over the country. 
and hybrid working has really helped with that because it's more representative. And anytime we can make any of the technolo- um, technology we create more representative, it's going to be better. So I, I really enjoy working on those two initiatives. And in particularly, you know, with uh, Innovate Earth and the sort of early years, earlier stuff, I just remember when I was uh, in primary school and I turned around to my teacher and I said, you know, I want to be an astronaut. And she just laughed in my face and said, you'll never be anything. And I just never wanted any sort of kid to go through that kind of crushing. It was crushing at the time. I remember feeling so depressed after that. Um, and that consequence of what she said, I lost all interest in um, science completely. Science and mathematics, I just totally shut down from them. And just the importance of actually having good role models and good mentors, I think is just absolutely crucial. And uh, the earlier we can start that, the better. Yeah, agreed. And I've kind of, I mean, interesting to kind of now see what you're doing and and all of these things you're involved in is is kind of like yeah look at me now that kind of thing but it it is so important and and mentors maybe that's the reason why I'm not very good at maths shout out to my maths teacher from school but yeah super interesting and a great thing to be a part of fantastic thing that obviously lots of people can get involved in and it's not just around Leeds but then like you say the working from home aspect and, and remote working has just unlocked that entire talent pool that perhaps organisations were just overlooking before. Last question, what are you currently reading, watching, listening to? And do you have any kind of books that you'd like, you'd like to recommend, something you read recently or watched recently that you're like, yeah, I think everybody needs to read this? I've been massively into Audible lately. So I got like a free trial and uh, never cancelled it. And now, now I feel like really tied in. So that's their behavioural nudges in, in place. So I've been actually listening to uh, Robert Cialdini's Persuasion kind of pinnacle book. So I do read a lot of books on cybersecurity, you know, there'll be all the usual suspects. But I actually find in terms of my job, not only just from the security awareness side of it, but also just um, being able to communicate with the board and things like that, which is, you know, part of my work as a head of security operations at ASDA is, uh, you know, doing a lot of communicating upwards. Persuasion is really key. So I find things like books on marketing and behavioural science really useful for that. I really love um, black box thinking as well. And I sort of use that quite a lot to demonstrate to particular people in my team about incremental gains. So the work we're doing at Asda at the moment is huge. It's the biggest um, digital transformation in Europe. Um, I'm establishing a whole new security function from scratch. It's a huge undertaking. I've got a deadline to do it in. But I'm sort of explaining to my team, you know, I don't need the marker to go from zero to one straight away. Incremental gains is, is what we need to be able to kind of keep things ticking on um, and just getting people in that right mindset. So black box thinking, um, eaters, uh, leaders eat last and things like that. I've been really enjoying those books. In terms of any kind of films, I really recommend the weird Al Yankovic uh, biopic that's just come out. I really enjoyed that. Um, I thought that was fantastic. Um Biopics are one of my uh, favourite genres because they're so cheesy. Um, and he has um, really, uh, like his music, he has set up the biopic genre so much. I absolutely adored every minute of it. I'm still chuckling now at some of the scenes that he's done. Oh, that's so good. I remember my original, the first iPod I ever bought, some of the, the first songs that went on there were by Weird Al Yankovic. I might have to go and listen to them now. Oh, I love Weird Al. He's so lovely as well. That's classic. Love that. Thank you so much. Leanne, it's been brilliant speaking with you. I learned a lot and, and kind of got to know a bit more about you um, and all the work you're doing. To our listeners, thank you very much for listening. There's more episodes to come. Uh, but for now, Leanne, thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.